Bibles. We are in Matthew 16 this morning, and we'll be actually here again next week. I mean, there's just so much here uh, as we were last week, and it starts out Matthew 16, 13. It says, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you? Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this is not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades or hell will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he warned his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. Now last week we, we left Jesus and the, and the disciples at Caesarea Philippi, and it's a beautiful area, and, and here's an idea of what it might have looked like back then as scholars have uh, found the foundations of different temples. And this was an area where many different type of, uh, we, we, you know, the world would call them gods. We, we say God with a little g. But, we, you know, the world worships so many different things. And so there was a whole bunch of temples there. And then, um, you know, Philip uh, built a, uh, and Herod built a, a place out there for, for themselves, of course, and to honor Caesar. Uh, but it's a, a beautiful retreat area. This is how it is today. That's the cave, literally, if they call the gates of hell that they believed that literally the, that was the, the way to go down to hell. And the god Pan and, and so forth was there, the nature god. It was a half goat and a half man that was worshipped there. And here's one other picture where they have all these little niches where, where they would put different statues of different gods that they would worship in the area. So Jesus is in the middle of this area going, who do you say I am? Do you say I'm one of these gods? Do you say I'm one of these that, that are just, you know, of the different gods that are worshipped up there? So they're hanging out there, which is kind of interesting. Jesus didn't always go to church or the synagogue to hang out. He got out into the world. And Jesus grabs this pagan environment, this, this area, and, and, and he teaches them. He teaches them to, to you know, the important thing uh, for us to understand out of this is that Jesus can teach us anywhere. For some reason, as Christians, we think the only place that Jesus can teach us is when we're sitting in some type of church building, right? And, and, and many, of the, you know, many people of the world think, well, I can't even go into that building because the walls would fall down. And that's how the world thinks. And it's so sad because we think that only time that Jesus can teach us is in church or in a Bible study at somebody's house or up at the church. We need to ex expect God to teach us in whatever environment that we're actually in at the time. So in verse 18, when Jesus talks about the gates of hell, 
and, 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 he, and, and all the rocks that are around. He just didn't pull these out of thin air. He is talking about the rock. And, and uh, you know, they're looking at all the rock face and the, uh, that dominates the skyline. And uh, when he says the gates of hell, they literally look toward the cave. How could you not look toward the cave when, you know, it's the gates of hell, you know, and, and you look over. It's an automatic response from us, uh, you know, just because we're human. And the, again, this is where they worship the god Pan. And they sacrifice goats to this god. And he says, Peter, on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overcome it. He's saying, guys, what I'm about to do, the world cannot overcome. Evil will not undo what I'm about to do. No little god that the world worships can hide from it. See, paganism and evil, uh, you know, just cannot contain who God is. I'm about to crash the gates of hell. The visual image that Jesus is giving us is that, you know, that hell has gates. And it's not for keeping people out. It's actually keeping people in. This is almost like the, think of the Berlin Wall for you guys that are old enough. The younger ones are sitting there going, Berlin, what are you talking about? The Berlin Wall, it fell in 19, what, 91, was it? 90, something like that. But if you were living in East Germany, if that wall hadn't have been there, would you still be living in East Germany? No. You'd be escaping. You'd be trying to get out. You know. But they built the wall to keep people in. That's the same concept here. The gates of hell, in a sense, were, were there to keep in. You know, it's not for the gates of hell and the binding that t- takes place in the hearts of men. It's interesting. This idea that, well, I can't go to heaven, so I'm just going to, well, you know, they're just going to take me to hell. That's fine. I'm gonna, I'll see you in hell. I mean, that's such a sad statement because it takes them right into eternity in that world. But Jesus gives us this, enemy, this image of, of the gates of the city and the gates, uh, you know... The, have you ever seen the old forts, old city gates and stuff? We talked about this several weeks ago, how, how you would come in and they would turn you automatically because it's a big, big, big rock wall, and then you would go a little ways, and then another big rock wall. In other words, it was almost like a maze trying to get in. Why did, that, why did they do that? Well, so the enemy couldn't crash the gates. The enemy couldn't get through the gates and take over the city rather quickly. Jesus says, hey, church, we're going to bust through these gates and they're not going to prevail and keep me in. Now, when I read this passage over and over, every time I read this, I, I kind of get this image of Ephesians where, you know, about standing firm against the attack of the devil and, and you know, the, the whole armor of God thing. But it's actually the opposite if you really get in here and think about it. It's a great picture, us in the armor of God. Uh, you know, like Ephesians says, it's not a bad picture, but that's just not the picture that Christ is giving us at this point. The picture is hell is the one who has the gates, and hell is trying to stay, uh, stand firm, and Jesus is leading the church to crash the gates of hell. It's a very offensive move. Jesus is on the attack. You know, I never really learned about attack Jesus in Sunday school, and, and I attribute this because mostly women are teaching in Sunday school, and, and we got nice Jesus, Right? Jesus was always nice. 
If more guys were in there, we'd talk, we'd talk a little bit more about attack Jesus, right? Encourage the men to get in there, you know? This is paintball Jesus on the attack. I mean, how does, how does he storm the gates of hell? Well, this is Matthew 16. In a few short chapters, Jesus is, is, you know, resolutely walks toward Jerusalem and allows himself to be arrested, allows himself to be, you know, abandoned and tried and spat upon and, and you know, his beard pulled out of his face and the crown of thorns literally be stuffed down onto his head to, to be whipped. He allowed all these things. Stripped before the crowd and Pilate says to the crowd, echo homo. Behold the man. <laughs> Behold your king. Then he will go to, you know, take his own cross to Calvary and allow himself to be nailed and hung there. He allowed this. Then he says, It is finished. And the ground shakes and an earthquake happens all over Jerusalem. And, and Nicodemus, who comes to the party late, comes and, and gets his body and takes it down. And, and they put him in a borrowed tomb. And they're thinking he is dead. And then throughout that weekend, Jesus crashes the gates of hell. And the reason he is doing it is this. It's to put the devil in his place concerning who the humans belong to. Who does God's people belong to? See, the devil thinks the humans belong to him. And this is the reason he goes and crashes the gates to take them back, those who believe, to redeem them. And then he was going to resurrect on the third day, which he did. And so many people you know, see him that they couldn't refute this for a couple of hundred years. Not until the relatives of all those people who initially saw it died off did they start refuting that the man named Jesus of Nazareth didn't raise from the dead. This is all about the gates of hell. The gates of hell will not prevail in regards to him. Now he is also saying to us, right here in Matthew 16, he's including what? The church. You know, I was thinking about what is wrong with the church today. I think a lot of it is we're on defense. When's the last time we've actually been on offense when it comes to, to the church? You know, we love Ephesians. We love the, the whole armor of God. We love all the defense stuff. But when's the last time that you were on offense? Because defense is only half the game. Survival is only half the battle, you know? After we survive the discouragement after we survive the attack that comes on us, at some point we have to dust ourselves off and we have to get up and follow Jesus into the battle. And everything that I've studied about war, I've learned one thing. If you don't go on to the attack, you're going to lose the battle. If you hunker down and you never gain any ground, you never go on the offensive, you never win until you, we get offensive. And not offensive as in offensive. There's enough offensive, you know what I'm saying? I can be offensive. I try not to be. But we'll never win the battle against evil. But unfortunately, we go, well, I could never be a leader in the church. I could, I could never be, you know, be used like Peter or, or Mark or one of, them, you know, one of them guys. I mean, you know, Peter. I mean, you know, the know-it-all. I put my foot in the mouth all the time, Peter. You know, I say it the wrong way all the time, Peter. 
And then we start to realize that, you know, if, if God can use a guy like Peter, if God can use a guy that sticks his foot in the mouth all the time, maybe, just maybe, God can use me. So we have to go on the offensive when it comes to the gates of hell. First of all, we have to follow Christ. We don't lead Christ, we follow. He is the commander. He is the great leader. He is the one that's leading us. The problem is we like to get in front of Christ, don't we? We're like Peter in that, where, where Christ has to come to Peter and say, get thee behind me, Satan. Get out of my way. So we follow Christ. Well, how do we do this? Well, that leads us to the second thing. We get to know Jesus. We have to get to know Jesus. We get into his word. You cannot know enough about Jesus without getting into his word. You can't just come on Sunday morning and expect, you know, that, okay, I know enough. I'm good to go for the week. You cannot expect that. We all want to, you know, a lot of times we're saying we want a deeper relationship with God. Well, how do I do that? Are you actually getting into the Word of God? That's the, the, the key to, to the beginning of this. You have to read it yourself. If you're, you know, if you're a person that doesn't like to read, get the Bible on your iPhone. Get it on CD. Do something. You know, the old, you know, we used to do the tapes, you know. And now it's CDs or MP3s or iPhone, whatever you want to do it. If you're not a reader, don't set the goal, well, I'm going to read the Bible. I'm going to read the whole Bible this year. If you're not a reader, don't set that goal. You're just setting yourself up for failure, right? Go, okay, I'm going to read this book. And go after that book. Read and study that book. And then when you're done with that one, pick another one. But don't set an arbitrary goal that you're not going to meet. So the more you study the Bible, the more you get to know Jesus. And this leads us to the third thing. And I know you're thinking, wow, he's doing points in sermons. I usually don't do the one, two, three, four, five point thing, you know. But this leads us to the third thing. You're going to follow Christ. You get into his word and then you worship God. And we use, the worship, we use the word worship most of the time to mean musical worship. And I'm going to use it in that, that uh, kind of idea today. But worship is who we are. It's more than just music. Worship is getting into his word. Worship's a sermon. Worship's a fellowship. Worship is everything we do. But when it comes to music, we need to worship Christ. I can't tell you sometimes how sad it makes me when we stand there and we may not even open our mouths during worship. Man, that just breaks my heart. Well, it's not my style of music. I like that song, but they play it differently. Or, I used to sing this, or I like it done this way. And, you know, I, I can't tell you how sad that is when we forget to worship. You know, I hesitated to, to even, I put this in my notes, and I hesitate to even bring this up, but it needs to be said. Kim's been, been talking for a long time about doing a night of worship, and, and, and we did one a couple of weeks ago uh, on a Saturday night. And it was very short notice that I put out the email saying, hey, we're going to have this night of worship. Uh, and, and, you know, we had worship leaders from other churches and different things. And really it's about learning worship, the concept of, of why I choose certain songs at certain times. And, and they're training up new worship leaders for this area, which is a really cool thing. Um, you know, so it's, it's more than just, oh, come and sing. You know, they learn along the way and, and so forth. But, man, I was disappointed with the amount of people who showed up. I really was. Because if we're not worshiping, man, it just, 
It's like, come on, it disappoints my heart because my wife and I love to worship. Now, if you already had plans, if you already had it on your schedule of doing something else, don't feel guilty. I mean, that's for the Holy Spirit to make you feel guilty, not me, okay? So, I mean, if you had something going on and you could, you know, you saw the email and you just erased it, I can't do that on Friday, Saturday night. I'm not here to make you feel guilty. I want to encourage you to have a worshipful heart. Man, my, my wife and I were trading Brandon off because we couldn't get a babysitter because it was late notice for us too. And we're, we're, we're trading off. I'm actually trying to do the PowerPoint, which I, I'm not, never good at PowerPoint because I start singing, I start worshiping, and then I forgot to go to, you know, I forget to go to the next slide. So really, you don't want me back there doing it. So I'm switching off with my wife. She's coming in to do some, and I'm taking Brandon because our three-year-old's just going crazy, you know, he's three. But man, it's disappointing when you have a night of worship and you want people there to worship God. I want to encourage you to worship God, not only in your life, but through music, and not only through music, but in your life. Sometimes it seems like we just don't want to worship. And then it makes me think, okay, well, if we don't want to worship, how's the rest of our life going? You're missing out. We follow Christ we study the Word of God, and then we worship. Why do we worship anyway? Well, it's a purifying agent. It refocuses us on, on who we should be worshiping and what this life is about. It focuses us on the nature of God. His nature and who we are and how we relate to each other. Instead, we like to focus on ourselves. But worship leads us to, you save me, Lord, you save me. And then, it, then, then we go on to, to, you know, changing our life when we worship. It changes us. Lord, you were great, and you were the one that I'm going to follow. Now help me put that into practice. So the fourth thing we do is petition to ask. It's almost like a formal invitation. Not just, Lord, bless my family. But Lord, bless my family in the following ways. If you want to change your prayer life, stop saying, Lord, you're so wonderful. I, no, don't stop saying that. But stop only saying that. Stop only saying, Lord, I, I want you to bless my family, bless my child, bless my wife, bless my work, bless this, bless that. Start getting really specific with the Lord. You see David do this over and over in the Psalms. He's getting ready to go into battle, and you get very specific. Everybody has a job. Have you ever noticed that in the battle, everybody has a job? You try not to do someone else's job? I mean, I think I'll drive the tank today. But Alan, you're not trained on the tank. You can't drive a tank. Oh, that's okay. How hard could it be? I mean, how dumb would that be for me to try to do someone else's job, right? That's the same concept for us. We have to do our own job. Lord, I'm going to need help next Tuesday at 3 p.m. because i got a meeting with my boss, and I don't think it's going to go so well. Can you help me out? Give me the words to say that are graceful, but to be able to say the things I need to say during that meeting. That's how we ought to be praying. Lord, my child needs help 1 o'clock on Tuesday or Wednesday because they have this test. And they need to do good on this test so they can get in the call. We need to get very specific in our prayers. And then that leads us to number five, intercession. Where we pray for someone else. This is a great way to crash the gates of hell. We love to march, don't we? We love to paint signs. 
And yes, that's a way of doing things. You know when we go out and protest something? You know, paint a sign, do a sign, march around in a circle, chant. We love doing those things. But really, the better way is to intercede, to stand in the gap for someone in prayer. Stand in the gap in a situation because what you're doing is you're doing the battle for them. You open up your spirit. You open up your schedule to God and say, whatever you want me to pray for, God, this is what I will pray for no matter when it is. Intercession. And that leads us to sacrifice. You will not succeed against the devil without personal sacrifice. Later on, Jesus will. He will sacrifice himself. And then he'll say, you will not succeed unless you take up the cross and follow me. Which is such a weird thing to say. Because it's the number one way of killing somebody in the Roman society. This would be somebody like saying, take up the lethal injection and follow me. Take up the electric chair and follow me. Take up the firing squad and follow me. Take up the noose and follow me. You know, in, this, we, in the first century, they didn't wear crosses around their necks. It re- represented condemnation. You know, it'd be like us today wearing an electric chair around our neck, you know? How weird would that be? The reason for crashing the gates of hell is so the world knows about Jesus' saving grace. So they can be a part of the church. You know, church is a very interesting word to, to begin with. It's a churchy word, right? It's one of those things you only hear during church, basically, or someone talking about the church. But it wasn't always a churchy word. If you go to the Greek, the, the word is ecclesia, and it, and it wasn't a religious word at all. It just meant a gathering. It wasn't a religious word until Jesus made it one. In Matthew 16, it's the first time that the word is used like this. And theologians will talk about the the law of the first mention. Anytime something's mentioned the first time in the Bible, you should really study the context in which it was was mentioned, what was around that. It means a gathering of people, a gathering of citizens. Jesus takes it and says, my church he defines the gathering. So he gets, you know, he gets it redefined as a gathering of Christians to worship Christ. Any group who lifts up Jesus as their Savior, who accepts the saving grace of God, who loves the Lord, who holds to the teaching of the Bible, who accepts the blood sacrifice and the resurrection of Jesus, that hold on to the hope of Christ for eternal life, is considered part of the church. Now, if they happen to call themselves Lutheran, or Catholic, or Baptist, or Pentecostal, it doesn't really matter, as long as they hold to the, to the tenets of the faith and have chosen Christ as their Lord, this is my church. Every weekend, for 24 hours around the world, the church meets. And it's an amazing thing. If you ever get the opportunity to go worship the Lord in a different language, go do it. They'll be singing songs, and you're sitting there going, I recognize the song, not the words, but I recognize the tune. It's like when my son's singing, I'm sitting there going, I recognize the tune, but not the words. Upon the church, 
Upon this rock I will build my church. Let's go back to verse 15. It says, but what about you, he asked? Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are, the Christ, you are Christ, or the Christ, the Son of the living God. A very concise statement. And, and I would imagine everybody was surprised that Peter actually came up with this statement. Even Jesus looked up, and I would imagine, and looked up at Peter and said, well, that wasn't you. We all know that. We know that you didn't come up with that. Now, you might remember, Jesus gave Simon a nickname, Petros, Little Rock, Cephas, in the, you know, depending on Aramaic or Greek. You are a little rock. Rocky, Jesus calls him. Jesus says, okay, little rock, good job. Verse 18, and I tell you, uh, tell you that, and I tell you that you are Peter, in other words, little rock, and on this rock I will build my church. And what he's saying here is on this rock, on the foundation of what you just said. It wasn't, I'm going to build this church on you, Peter. It was on the foundation of what you just said. What did you just say? You said you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's the foundation that he's going to build the church upon. I mean, if he was building the church on people like Peter, the foundation would be all messed up, right? I mean, if, you, you know, if you're building something and you don't have somebody there with knowledge of how to build, it gets really screwed up, right? I've had a few projects like that. That's usually why I bring in friends to help me. I'm a great helper. Just tell me how to do it. I built some nice stuff with some good help, you know? I mean, Simon Peter is awesome, but he's just a person. And his humanness really shows us that in the Bible. If he were here, he would say the same thing. The church is not built on Simon Peter. Jesus is actually using a wordplay here. Hey, little rock, I'm going to build my church. My church. Simon, what did you just say? You were the Christ and, and you were the son of the living God? That is right, Rocky. And my father revealed that to you. And I will build my church on the rock of what you just said. And it will be called the church. It's the first time this, this term is used in the Bible. And the church goes right, into, to, uh, you know, right in with Christ into eternity. It's also called the bride. Now, the Bible teaches us that people are the rock, or that he will build the church on individuals. In other words, plural, multiple individuals. We have to be careful in making theological decisions on one verse. We have to look at the totality of the Bible, not just one verse. That's why I kept, you know, I, I uh, texted a uh, uh, Kim and said, hey, you know the, the song Rock of Ages? I'd love for you to sing that song. And I started going into the whole Masada thing and the rocks and, and, and different things because in some circles they try to make Peter as the rock, but the Bible doesn't do that. It's mentioned in over 40 different times in the Old Testament that God, is, that only God is the rock. And I'd love to go through them, but you would kill me if I went through all of them. I'm only going to go through two of them. In Deuteronomy 3.23, and we've kind of already gone over these a little bit, but I will proclaim the name of the Lord. Oh, praise the greatness of our God. He is the rock. His works are perfect, and all his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong, upright and just is he. 
In the first Samuel 2, 2, there is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one beside you. There is no rock like our, our God. So Jesus is saying, you are Petros, you are a little stone, but this Petra, this huge concept, this large rock, I'm going to build my church on. Now, an interesting side note, we'll move on. Simon Peter just confessed exactly who Jesus is. I mean, he nails it. He turns now and tells Peter who he is. It's interesting. Once you figure out who Jesus is, then Jesus turns around and tells you who you are. Not like, well, I'm going to set you in your place, little man. No. He uplifts us. There's a lot of people out there trying to find themselves, which is a very interesting game of hide-and-seek, if you know what I'm talking about, right? You want to find yourself, discover Jesus. If you want to know who you are, go out there, find Jesus, implement Jesus and who he is into your life, and you will start to find the purpose for your life. And you can't do that unless you find Jesus. You're purposeless. Peter had to find Jesus. And then Jesus said, let me tell you who you really are. You're going to follow me on the offensive against the gates of hell. And he goes on, he says, and I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. See, we have to remind ourselves that it's his church. I will build my church, he says. He owns it. He directs it. We can either help him or we can tear it down. It's dangerous for us to think that it is our church. Now, he allows us to take our flavor on church and use it. I mean, a generation ago, we wouldn't have had two guitars on a stage and and drums and and definitely, well, maybe a bass, you know. Definitely not keyboard. I mean, keyboard. I mean, come on, throw that out the door. Let's get out the piano. You know what I'm saying? A generation ago, we would not have. The Lord allows us to put our own flavor on church, and that is okay. I still haven't gotten to the flip-flop Sunday yet. I'm going to get there. I I, I don't understand something. Why women can wear you know, flip-flops, but they have all these cute little straps that go across, and everybody thinks, oh, they're so nice. But the guy wears flip-flops, they don't look good, right? Why is that? Well, because the guys are comfortable and the women's aren't. So, I mean, we'll just leave it at that. I don't know how I got off on that, but, you know, it's okay to have different flavors in church. Nonetheless, we have to be careful. Just because we're Americans doesn't mean that we shape the church of the rest of the world. In fact, we were one of the last continents to receive the Word of God. When we start to decide for ourselves, very quickly we get off into heresy, don't we? We get off into false practice and wrong things. Very quickly we get into the world of idolatry, to find something to worship or idolize, because that is our nature. Jesus says, I will build my church. Now, because we live in a democratic republic, we have a big problem with letting it be his church. I mean, if we lived in a monarchy, we wouldn't have to worry. We wouldn't have to decide. They would tell us what to to worship. They would tell us what to do. But in America, we like to shape our life, don't we? We get to vote on everything. And if we're not careful, we bring that same vote, that same desire for independence right into the Word of God. And we have to go back and say, oh, 
You are the church. You are God. You are Lord of Lords. You're the one in charge. You're the rock of ages. You're the one that's going to build your church. So what is our part? To get to know you, Lord. To study your word. To cooperate with you. To worship you. On this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overcome it. When Jesus said the gates of hell will not overcome it, he is saying that death will not be a problem. Amen to that, right? The disciples didn't understand this six months out. They didn't understand this six weeks out. It took them all the way to, you know, through the weekend and Jesus being resurrected uh, resurrected in 10 days into Pentecost before they started understanding the results of his death and resurrection. They have seen Jesus being confronted time after time and after time. And we're going to see this more and more as we get near that time where he goes toward Jerusalem. And they're going to come after him, you know, just more and more and sharper and sharper. And the attacks are just going to get worse and worse. To the point where the Son of God is going to, you know, go die in a brutal death on a Roman cross. So Jesus is starting to prepare them six months out. But in six months, man, they've seen him get, after, get out of bind after bind after bind. I mean, there's one part of the scriptures where we even believe, I mean, it says that Jesus literally just disappeared. Now, we don't know if that means, oh, he just kind of went through the crowd and, and, and they didn't recognize. I mean, it basically meant he just got out of the situation. He disappeared. They've seen him do that time after time. But then as they get closer and closer, He's going to be talking about his death. And even Peter will say, Lord, don't talk about that. That's not ever going to happen. But he's preparing them because death is part of his plan. I have to defeat death, he says. I have to go up and crash the gates of hell. And then I'm going to take away the keys and I'm going to give them to you, the church. You, the church. Now, what are we doing with those keys? You have to ask yourself. What have you done with the salvation that you've received and the, get, and the keys to the gates of hell? Are you going and unlocking it for other people? Have you even tried that? Or do you just go, whoo, hallelujah, I'm saved, and then we sit down? We have to get on the offensive. Kim and I have been talking about different ways that, for our church to get on the offensive. Things that we can do for our community different programs, different things that we can do called the, the Family Resource Center and starting out helping our community. Are we willing to go on the offensive? Are we, willing, are we willing to put our time and effort and energy into doing the things of God? Or are we not? That's a big question, and only you can answer that question to yourself. What are you doing with the keys that Christ has given you to build His church? Let's pray as the worship team comes up. Lord, I pray that we start to understand what it means when you say you're going to build your church, that upon this rock I will build my church. I pray that we don't ignore that, that we get in there and we crash the gates of hell with you, that we we turn our lives around and do something for you, that we not rely on the saving grace and then that be it. 
that we implement some of these things into our daily life and we turn around to the world and say, who do you say Christ is? And that our lives represent you so much that they turn around and say, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. That we not rely on other people to do that, Lord. Too often we're on the defensive, Lord. Teach us how to go on to the offense. Now the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord's face shine down upon you. And may he bless you in ways that you have never imagined this week. As you get into his word, as you talk with him, as you be with him. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.